Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and we will be reading the first five verses. We began last week with just an introduction and kind of a flyover view of the book of John. And this morning we begin with the first five verses of chapter 1. Please give your attention to God's word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. My family has a dog named Dash. Very smart little dog, and we learned that fairly quickly when we brought him into our home. We were able to teach him to ring a bell that hangs by the door when he wants to go outside to go to the bathroom. It was extremely helpful to us in him both communicating with us and also making our life easier. But it got a little more complicated over time because after a little while, when he realized that ringing that little bell by the door got him on the other side of the door, he began to think up all kinds of other reasons why he wanted to be on the other side of the door besides just having to go to the bathroom. So ringing the bell eventually came to mean, I may want to go to the bathroom, or maybe I just want to go out and run around, or maybe I want to go out and chase those squirrels I see in the tree, or maybe I want to go and bark at that UPS man in the driveway. Well, over more time, as that meaning of ringing the bell got more and more general, it's actually interesting, we started to notice that he was ringing the bell for even things that he wanted inside the house, like if he wanted food in his bowl or water in his bowl, or if he wanted the cat out of his favorite chair, or whatever it is he might have wanted, he would go and ring the bell. So as you can figure out, over time, ringing the bell became almost meaningless. All it meant was, I want something. And so he would ring the bell and ring the bell, and when we didn't give him what he wanted, he would keep ringing the bell. And I would get frustrated, and I would look at Dash, and I would say, just tell me what you want. Words are extremely valuable things. And when you think about how necessary words are to life, how much we rely on words, you begin to get a sense of what John, the gospel writer, is getting at when he calls Jesus Christ the Word. In these verses we just read, he repeatedly refers to Jesus Christ as the Word. Words serve two purposes. For us, internally, words enable us to take our thoughts and our feelings and give them form. Give them form and order so that we can even understand our thoughts and feelings internally. But the second great purpose of words is so that we can take those thoughts and feelings, those internal uh dwellings of the soul, the the, the things that we dwell upon in our soul, and communicate them to other people. That's how we basically share what's going on in our soul 
the essence of our being, how we share that with another person, how we get to know another person, how we begin to have a relationship with another person. And we think about God. We, we rug, wrestle with words because words, because we're sinners, are sometimes reflective of sins in our hearts, and sometimes they don't even reflect what's in our hearts because we're wanting to hide what's in our hearts. And so there's a disconnect between what's inside of us and what's coming out of our mouths. But when you think of God, God is pure. God is righteous. And so God's words do not deceive. They do not hide. They accurately reflect the heart of God. His thoughts are perfectly communicated through his words. It's a perfect reflection. His words are a perfect reflection of who he is. And because he's sovereign and all-powerful, his words have the power to do all that God wills to do. And so, when John calls Jesus the word, and the word in the original Greek is logos, I'm sure you've heard that word in Greek before, when John gives Jesus the name Logos. He's intending to communicate that at at a minimum, but it's actually helpful to look at it in the historical context because the word Logos had taken on some trendy meanings among the philosophers of the first century. And it's interesting how John is seeking to appeal to Jewish people from a Hebrew background and also using the word Logos to appeal to the Greeks and the Romans. Logos, in Greek philosophy, in the the, uh, popular Greek philosophy of the day, the word logos referred to this supernatural force, this unifying principle that gives order to the universe. The fact that two and two, two plus two equals four. The fact that gravity always... uh, brings things downward. The the whole concept, anything of the laws and principles of science, any sense of order, uh, irrationality, they attributed that to a supernatural force from the divine world they called logos. It wasn't a person. It was an impersonal force, but they attributed it to the logos, the sense of order, the sense of direction, the shape of everything in the universe. Well, to the Jews, when they would read their Jewish translation of the Old Testament and the word for, for, uh, the word, um, that is translated logos in the Old Testament referred to the word of God. And so when they think of the word of God, they think of the voice of the one true God, Yahweh. And that was the power, they believe, according to the, to what was revealed, that brought the universe into existence. It was the revelation of God's person and God's will to Moses and to the prophets. And the the word or the voice of God was the very will of God, how you know what God's will is. It's interesting, in the day in which Jesus was born, there was already a philosopher on the scene. As a matter of fact, they lived at almost exactly the same time the Jewish philosopher named Philo of Alexandria, he was kind of an interesting character because he was raised a Jew, but he became very immersed in Greek and Roman culture. 
And so his philosophy, as he became known as a writer and a philosopher, was reflective both of his Jewish background, but also of the popular philosophy of the Greeks. And it's interesting, he called the Logos, he wrote a lot about the Logos, and when he wrote about it, here's some phrases, he called it the bridge between God and his creation. He called the Logos a mediator between God and creation. And he even called the Logos the captain and pilot of the universe. Now, it's interesting, again, he, Philo, did not think of this as a person, but you, that just gives you a sense of what this philosophy was in the first century. It was a popular term, Logos. And John knew that. And so as he calls Jesus the Logos, or the Word, he knows that he's tapping into a perspective both of his Jewish audience and his Gentile audience. And he's basically saying to them in a very similar way in which Paul on Mars Hill in in Acts chapter 17, talking to the Greeks in his day, he's doing the same thing. He's saying, you know in part. You see vaguely. You have a sense of this truth. Let me reveal to you the whole truth about this logos, this word. When you look at verse 1 as he begins his gospel, it's amazing to me. I started to study these again. These are so familiar to most of us. Really, they are very simple words that he uses here. Extremely simple language. But in using these very simple words, he is revealing some of the most deep and profound and mysterious truth about Christ, about God, and about the universe. He has said that he wants us to see the glory of Christ. We looked at that last week. That we might see and understand who Jesus is so that we might believe and then have life in his name. And so he's beginning to introduce us to Jesus Christ. But as we said last week, he doesn't start with the birth like Matthew and Luke do. You know, when you first meet somebody, one of the first questions you usually ask them is, where are you from? Because if somebody tells us where they're from, that's a very quick way of gathering a lot of data about what culture they may have grown up in, kind of what social class they might have come from, what the traditions and religious views may be of that area. We can gain a lot of information about somebody in a very short time if we just ask them, where are you from? And so, really, that's what John is doing here. He says he wants to introduce us to Jesus Christ. He says, look at where he came from. John tells us in order to understand who Jesus Christ is, you need to go back farther than his childhood. You need to go back farther than his birth. You need to go back farther than his parents' birth or his grandparents' birth. You need to go back to creation and even before creation. John begins with the very familiar words, in the beginning. Any Jewish person who heard or read that would immediately think, of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. How the very Word of God, the revealed Word of God, is starts. How it begins. In the beginning. He's going to the very moment when God began to call the universe into existence. And what he says is, in that moment, before God said, let there be light, 
And that very moment in the beginning was the Word. The Word, Jesus Christ, the Logos, already existed before God called light into existence. It's interesting, in the early church, around 300 A.D., in the early church uh, uh, history, one of the church fathers, a great man named Athanasius, was fighting a huge doctrinal battle that was consuming the church at that time. He was fighting against an, a heretic named Arius. And the heresy that Arius was teaching that was becoming very popular across the board in the church was that Jesus was a created being and that he's inferior to God the Father. And when Athanasius appealed to this verse, this is how he interpreted it. He said, there never was a time when he, the word, was not. That's how he paraphrased that verse. There never has been a time when he was not, when he did not exist. He has always existed. And then John takes it a step further. He tells us, and the word was with God. There's a mind-blowing couple of words for a Jewish person. Before anything was created, there was a person who already existed and had always existed who was with God. That would just blow the tires off of any monotheist. You know, how could there possibly be an eternal person who existed at the moment of creation along with God? It's interesting, the word there in Greek means towards he was towards God. And it's the preposition you use when you want to say face-to-face with someone, when you use it in relation to a person. So this person, the Word, was with God in the sense he's face-to-face with God. And when you use that phrase, typically what it's being alluded to is a very personal, intimate relationship between these two persons. Minds us of what Jesus would later say in John 17. John 17 is such a remarkable chapter. I'm looking forward to working through it many months down the road here. But in that prayer, and it's just amazing that we have this prayer, an intimate conversation between the Son of God and God himself. But listen to what Jesus says in the midst of that high priestly prayer. He says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We can't even begin to imagine what Jesus was thinking of when he prayed that. The glory that he and the Father shared for all eternity before the universe existed. He longed. To be face to face with the Father again in that same sense. And then, of course, lest there be any doubt what John is implying here, he writes, And the Word was God. And the Word was God. Jesus existed before the creation, and he was with God the Father when the creation was brought about. But more than that, 
He was God at that very moment. And of course, again, we think ahead to the life of Christ when he's in that great debate in John chapter 8 with the Pharisees. And they're challenging his authority to speak for God. This eternal word who had been with the Father before creation, they're challenging his authorities to speak for God. Do you remember what he said? He said, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's making two statements there that, he, that John had already made here in verse 1. Before Abraham existed, I existed. Matter of fact, I existed eternally before Abraham. But he's saying more than that. The word I am is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yahweh. Before Abraham was, I not only existed, I not only was, I not only was with God the Father, but I was God and I am God. I am that I am is what Yahweh means. Now, of course, I, just a side note here, just in case any of you have to deal with Jehovah's Witnesses or, or other cultists or heretics who uh, like to make this point, they point to this verse where it says, where at the end of verse 1, where it says that the word was God, and they say that the word God there does not have the definite article, the, in the Greek. It does not say, and the word was the God. So therefore, what John was really saying is that the word was God-like, or the word was a God, but not the God. I just want to point it out and take a moment to deal with that, if you have to deal with that in talking with anybody in your life, because it is just bad translation to claim that. It is not true that the absence of the definite article, the, before God, means that it has to be translated as little g God or God-like or divine. That's not how you translate it. When a noun appears in the second half of a sentence, in the predicate of a sentence in the Greek, it often doesn't have the definite article. It's very common. Matter of fact, I'll prove it to you. Take you down to verse 49 of chapter 1. There you have the confession of Nathaniel, the disciple, and it says there, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. The word king there is a noun in the predicate, and it does not have the definite article, but you see the English puts it there because that's appropriate to put it there because that is what Nathaniel mean. He didn't, he didn't mean you're a king of Israel, he meant you're the king of Israel, you're the Messiah. And so John is consistent even within this chapter, let alone consistent with Greek and the rest of the New Testament. Clearly, what John is saying here is that Jesus existed eternally before creation. He existed with God the Father, and Jesus is God. We are, of course, talking about the precious, orthodox, historic doctrine of the Trinity here. And I wish I could elaborate upon it. But I remember a seminary professor that I had. He was about to teach the section of our class called the Doctrine of God. He was about to teach the section on the Trinity. And he stood up at the beginning of the first class on that section. And he wrote these things on the board. And he says, here is everything that I can possibly teach you about the Trinity in these statements. And on the board, this is what it said. There is only one God. 
Statement one. The second statement had three parts. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And then statement three said, the Father, Son, and Spirit are separate persons. Okay, did you get that? Statement one, there's only one God. Statement two, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Statement three, the Father, Son, and Spirit are all separate persons. And he said, that's all I can teach you. He said, I can't explain that. I can't add to that. I can't elaborate on that. That's what the Bible teaches us. And we can't understand it because God is incomprehensible. To think that we could understand the being of God and make it fit our tiny mind, our sense of rationality, is like an ant trying to figure out who we are. There's no way that we can understand or comprehend God. And so he reveals what we need to know about him, and this is what he's revealed about himself. That God the Son is the one true Yahweh of the Old Testament. So is the Father, so is the Spirit, and they are all separate persons. That's what John is communicating. It's amazing how much deep, profound truth John is communicating just in that one verse about who Jesus Christ is. But he goes on. You know, when you first meet somebody, you don't only ask them, where are you from? But then you also tend to ask them, what do you do? Because that gives you another set of important information about who this other person is so that you can truly know them. And so that's where John goes next. In verse 3, he says, All things were made through him, and with him was not anything made that was made. Without him was not anything made that was made. Again, put yourself in the sandals of a first century Jew. He's saying that the word Jesus Christ is the creator. He wasn't just a passive witness of God's creative work in Genesis 1 and 2. He was there and he was actually the active agent in creation. He is the designer and builder of everything. All of the beauty and complexity of the universe that we're still only beginning to explore was designed and and created by Jesus Christ. He is the artist behind every flower, between every tree, behind every tree, behind every animal, behind every sunset, behind every mountain range, behind every galaxy in the sky. He's the artist. For John to speak this way about Jesus Christ, I think for a faithful Jew who really knew their Old Testament would draw their attention back to Proverbs chapter 8. You remember the beginning of the book of Proverbs, Solomon talks about wisdom and he he kind of allegorizes a little bit, he personifies wisdom and talks about wisdom calling out to us. But listen to how he describes wisdom in chapter 8 of Proverbs. Let me read this section to you. It says, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. 
The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, the pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles all who govern justly. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the rice way of righteousness and the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there was no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before hills I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea to its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing beside him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of men. Most commentators have said that's, Christ speaking as the word, as the wisdom of God, as the word of God, speaking of his work of creation on behalf of God the Father. Of course, it reminds us of that first hint of the Trinity in Genesis chapter 1, where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. God speaking as a community of persons in creating mankind. If you daily see Jesus Christ as your creator and the creator of the entire universe, it'll transform your worldview. And if your worldview is transformed, it'll transform your life. Stephen Hawking, the unbelieving scientist, once wrote, The eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that explains the entire universe. The goal of science is to find a single theory that will explain the entire universe. If he would just ask me, I would tell him where to look. It's in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Here is the single theory that explains everything in the universe. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Listen carefully. For by him, by the word, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is creator, and Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the reason for all existence, and he holds all that exists together. He is the Logos. He is the one who gives order and meaning and purpose to the universe. He is the creator and the sustainer. So Jesus existed before creation with the Father, and he is God, the God who created all things. How is this relevant to us? Well, that's what John gets to in verse 4. In him, in the word... In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. We're going to be dealing with those two words a lot in the Gospel of John. John talks a lot about the light 
and the life. In the Greek New Testament, the word bios, that we get biology from, is the word that typically is used for physical life, the way we use it in biology, physical life. But when the New Testament writers talk about spiritual life, they use the word zoe. And that means that eternal, supernatural life, which is lived before the face of God, under the favor of God. That's life. And that's what John's referring to here. And again, going back to the prayer in John 17, John prays to his, or Jesus prays to his father, Father, you have given the Son authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is supernatural, spiritual life. It's to know God, the Father, and to know God, the Son, Jesus Christ. That's what life is. If you don't know God through Jesus Christ, you don't know life. You may have bios, physical life, and you might live with no higher purposes than the animals of the forest might live, or you have Zoe, the spiritual life, which is knowing God the Father through God the Son, Jesus Christ. And notice what John goes on to say in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, the darkness that he's referring to there is the opposite of light and life, spiritually speaking. He's talking about spiritual darkness, which is the absence of God's presence, the Judgment of God, the world after the fall, a world full of rebellion and self-centeredness, enslaved by sin and destined for eternal spiritual death. The light has shone in that darkness. The light, there was just a pinprick of that light in Genesis chapter 3, even in the Garden of Eden, even after sin came in and brought all that deep darkness into the world... God gave a light which was the light of Christ that anticipated the coming of Christ, which said that the head of the serpent would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And that light grew over time as the darkness dominated the light. That pinprick of light got bigger and bigger and bigger as God gave his covenant promises to Abraham and his covenant promises to Moses and to David. And that bright light got brighter and brighter until you get to what the writer of Hebrews talks about, the ultimate revelation of that light. He, refer, he describes it in this way, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's exactly what John is getting at when he calls Jesus the Logos, the word of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That is the light that shines in the darkness. And John says the darkness cannot overcome it. Interesting, 
That word actually has two possible meanings in the Greek. It actually, you could translate in English, the darkness has not apprehended it. And if you use that English word for it, it actually carries both meanings, doesn't it? To apprehend something can mean to seize something or to overcome it, and that's the way that the ESV translates it. Or to apprehend means to mentally seize something, to understand, to embrace something. And, I, and as we study the Gospel of John, we're going to see that John means that in both ways. The darkness cannot overcome the light of Christ, and the darkness cannot grasp or understand the light of Christ. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the world cannot either understand or extinguish the light and life of Christ. We use words in order to know one another. God sent his word so that we might know him. Remember the central purpose of John's gospel we read last week, John chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's purpose, as we saw last week, is that we might Accept what he has told us about Jesus Christ and that we might fall on our knees and say along with the disciple Thomas, my Lord and my God, my creator and my sustainer. But he's also our savior. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, he concludes that book and it's basically an apologetics book written to unbelievers. And at the end of that book, interestingly, he spends a chapter on the Trinity And I don't know about you, but when I'm talking to unbelievers, the Trinity is one of the last things that I tend to bring up. Because we Christians can't comprehend it, let alone unbelievers comprehend the Trinity. But it's interesting, he ends the book, the the crescendo of his whole book is about the Trinity. And this, I pulled out this quote from that chapter. He says, this world was not created by a God who is an individual, nor is it the emanation of an impersonal force. It is not the product of power struggles between personal deities, nor of random, violent, accidental, natural forces. Christians reject these other creation accounts, which refuse to give love primacy. We believe that the world was made by a God who is a community of persons who have loved each other for all eternity. You were made for mutually self-giving, other-directed love. Self-centeredness destroys the fabric of what God has made. I remember just being enthralled when I first read that the first time. That's what the importance of the belief in the Trinity is, is that we were made, we were, we, that's really what the gospel is. The gospel is inviting us into what Keller calls the dance of the three persons of the Trinity. They've been in this others-focused loving relationship, self-giving, mutually glorifying love for all eternity. And the gospel is inviting us who are sinners in that deep darkness that John's referring to being invited to come into that eternal relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The problem is that we are self-centered. And our pride and our sin, our self-centeredness separates us from God. And that's why As John will say, and we'll look at soon, the word became flesh and dwelt among us because he had to become a sacrifice for our sins. The just wrath of God had to be satisfied 
And so Jesus satisfied it when he hung on the cross in our place. Jesus died so that we can have the Zoe life, not just the Bios life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He who has seen me has seen the Father. To know God, you need to know his word, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for creating us. But much more importantly, thank you for sending your Son to reveal yourself to us and to redeem us, to save us, to bring us out of darkness into light and life. Lord, convict us of our need to share that light and life with those around us. Use us as your witnesses, and we thank you for the witness of John. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.